Something I forgot to mention in the announcements at the beginning is that as we adjust to our wonderful new elevator and there's those handicap spots out there, um, just want to remind you that uh, you, you do need to have a handicap sticker for those or some kind of handicap classification because the South Holland police officers can come through and, and ticket you. Uh, and that has nothing to do with, with us. It's more the handicap regulations sort of reigning over, uh, uh, over the area. So um, we do have those special use spaces out there that are for uh, anyone who needs to use the elevator. You can feel free to use those. But those marked handicapped, please make sure you do have uh, the ability to park there if you do choose to do so. Just want to make you aware of all of that. I didn't want to forget that I was supposed to make that. Is there any, Roger, is there anything else that was that? Okay. Luke 22, verse 63. Reading through the end of the chapter, verse 71. This is God's holy word. It is given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 22, verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather around your word for these precious moments, we ask that you would by your spirit work mightily, that you would open our ears to your truth, uh, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would enliven our souls. Father, we pray that you would cleanse your servant who seeks to proclaim your word and your truth. Father, that only what is true from you uh, would endure today, but that our lives would be built up through it. We trust in the power of your spirit now in these moments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The telling sign in our age and our world, if you go to Google, you know, they have the suggestions of how you might finish your search If you type in, don't tell me, one of the top suggestions is, don't tell me how to live my life. This is certainly a calling card of the sovereign self, of modern man, the liberated self. To be alive, many would say, is to be free of all constraints, free of all hurdles. To be alive is to live however you want. This position is, it falls apart rather quickly, doesn't it? There's all kinds of of parameters and boundaries around our society. The high population of our jails and prisons is a constant reminder that 
you, you really can't live, there are all kinds of ways in which you can't live just however you want. A lot of times people try to do that and they get caught, they end up paying for it. But this mindset is, it creeps into all kinds of areas of our life. It's surprising to see the many ways in which it shows up. There's a celebrity who just in the past couple of weeks, he has been saying for a while that he in some sense is a Christian and another celebrity or actress, I'm not really exactly sure, uh, criticized him for his Christian stance and uh, criticized him because the church with which he is affiliated tends to take a more traditional stance on issues of sexuality, although that itself is not entirely clear. Uh, But she criticized him, and uh, his response was rather telling. He said this, My faith is important to me, but no church defines me or my life. I am a man who believes that everyone is entitled to love who they want, free from the judgment of their fellow man. This response, it shows an extremely shallow conception of the Christian faith. The church, the gospel, Jesus Christ, all of these things, as we've talked about already today, they do define our lives. And Jesus does tell us how to live and the kind of confines within which we are to live in any number of ways. He may confess, this, uh, this man may confess the idea of God, but ultimately he wants to remain judge over all the issues, you know, sort of holding on to the authority, keep God at an arm's length, unless it's convenient for him to bring God closer. The high priest, you might say, of the new atheism is uh, Richard Dawkins. And he has a, it, his whole uh, spiel has to do with authority as well. He says to believe in any God is to commit intellectual high treason. And by that he means ultimately all the decisions that you make, you must remain on the throne as judge, sitting over everything. And he is the one who's going to tell us which way we are to go on these issues. So you see an interesting thread of connection between shallow Christianity and the new atheism. It has to do with authority or wanting to hold on to it ourselves. Don't tell me how I am to live my life. Today's passage, in a few different ways, confronts that error. And, and it's a challenge, a challenge placed to the world, a challenge placed uh, to ourselves as well. It shows the foolishness of men who presume to stand in judgment over God, who presume themselves to have the kind of authority. It also brings forth the, the heart of the matter of truth. Truth exists outside of us, and truth exists outside of us whether we believe it and hold to it or not. And the ultimate truth of who Christ is is coming to be made known in this world, whether individuals confess it and believe it or not. And so it confronts us with this challenge and these questions uh, to make sure that we are submitting to the authority, the proper authority over us, that we're having faith in what has been revealed and that we have belief in Jesus Christ. Three main ideas today. Uh, Patient endurance. The patient endurance of Jesus. He patiently endures suffering, judgment, and unbelief. He patiently endures suffering, judgment, and unbelief. And in all that, God is bringing forth the glories of his grace. He is bringing forth the comfort that we are to have as we walk through uh, this life, submitting to the Lord and the King of Kings, the one who suffered and in whose shadow we suffer.
We remind ourselves then, the first main idea, patiently enduring suffering. We remind ourselves that last week Peter has denied Jesus. That has been the the, the last thing that we saw. Jesus looks at Peter. Peter is reminded that Jesus has uh, prophesied that this would take place. said, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to do so three times. Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. The result of all of this is that Jesus is now truly alone. We often think of Peter as the the singular person who denies Jesus. Ultimately, uh, what Luke seems to be telling us is that everyone else sort of fell off the road before Peter. Peter was the only one who followed Jesus after he was taken captive. But Peter also uh, decides to abandon Jesus. Jesus is now suffering alone. And this is intentional by, by Luke. Luke is showing us that Jesus suffers alone, the historical truth that Jesus suffered alone, to bring forth the theological truth of Christ alone. The salvation that we have is in Christ alone. No one can suffer like he did. No one can accomplish what he did. Jesus suffering alone brings forth the truth of salvation in Christ alone. By his stripes we are healed. No, no one else's stripes, but by his stripes we are healed. We also see here uh, the Jesus being stricken and smitten and afflicted in fulfillment of prophecy. Pastor Kent Hughes says that Jesus stands before his enemies in regal silence. There's this paradox of his authority and his humble submission, his patient endurance of suffering as he is uh, physically abused by those who are holding him captive. Beginning to fulfill what Jesus said back in chapter 18 of Luke, uh, not that he would be, not yet that he has been handed over to the hands of Gentiles, but he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Verse 65 says that as they are hitting Jesus, as they are mocking him, uh, and they also blindfolded him, and that is sort of a, a twisted and evil version of a children's game, you know, various children's games where they are blindfolded or someone has to close their eyes and, and guess who it is that tagged them. Those kinds of games were present in the Greco-Roman world, so the, the readers of this gospel would have made that connection. There's this evil, twisted version of you know, blind man's bluff or something like that. In verse 65, it says, they said many other insulting things to him. A more literal translation of that is, they uttered other blasphemies. They did other blasphemous things against Jesus. They're not just insulting him, they're blaspheming. Because by their actions, they're rejecting the authority of the King of Kings, of the Creator, of the God-Man. The irony that Luke is, is pointing out there, that's the only occurrence of blasphemy in this passage. So that as Jesus is going to be accused of blasphemy, who is it that's actually blaspheming as this is going on? Those who reject Jesus. That's a bit of the, the, the paradox of the cross. Jesus will be tried in terms of being a blasphemer, but the ones who reject him, uh, the ones who try him, are the ones who are blaspheming. The wisdom of Christ and his words of life, these have all been rejected. And that's also what's going on here. See, the one who comes from the Father's right hand, the one who comes from heaven's glory, has given words of life to those who need it. He's given words of salvation and declared them and proclaimed them, but that has all been rejected. 
one of the great prophecies that's being fulfilled as this is going on is Isaiah 50, where it says the suffering servant has been given words of life to speak to the world, but he will be abused and rejected. Nevertheless, it will be God who vindicates him. This is what Isaiah 50 says in verse 11. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. In other words, he's able to speak truth. Messiah. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. The suffering servant is faithful. He is true to what God has called him to do. True of Jesus, of course. But then it says this. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The unjust abuse of uh, the one who came with wisdom in his mouth, with the words of life on his tongue. He is wise, he has given salvation, he has proclaimed it, but he is being rejected. Nevertheless, he patiently endures. His work is worthy of our gratitude and our belief and our awe, our awe. I, uh, I read an article this week. It's interesting, you come across these things a lot now. There is the homepage of MSN or something like that. And uh, it was how healthy it is for human beings to feel awe and, and how that translates into sort of a healthier lifestyle, better emotional balances and all those kinds of things. And so one of the, the things that the, the article said was, so, you know, go outside and, and take in the views of the mountains and things like that. We have a little bit of a problem with that here in Illinois. Not many mountains outside that we can go and be awed by. But as Christians, uh, every day and, and every Lord's Day especially, as we intentionally set aside time, what is it that we can do? We can be in awe of God's grace. And, and that is what is happening with these accounts of the cross, being in awe of what Christ has done, patiently enduring suffering. But it's not just awe, is it? It's, it's uh, comfort. We're made to be comforted through the patient endurance of Jesus. The road that Jesus walked gives us hope and comfort in the midst of our affliction. The temptation when dark days come, when unbelievable hardships and trials come our way, tragedy strikes, and uh, you can't believe what has just taken place, somebody dealing with uh, enormous hurt. The temptation is to walk by the light of our own wisdom. The temptation is to walk by the, the light of the answers that we would concoct ourselves and invent ourselves. We need to suffer in the shadow of the cross. Because only Jesus' sufferings make sense of our own sufferings. So all of this is a comfort to us. That we are to rely on the name of the Lord. In fact, that's what Isaiah 50 says to do. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. For that is what the Messiah did. That is what the Christ did. And the Lord vindicated him. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If God is for us, who can be against us, even in the midst of circumstances that are confusing and suggest something else? This passage begins to confront us with all of these issues, and it, 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 even as Jesus is being rejected, we're seeing his authority and his message being rejected by the leadership in Israel, it confronts the world with the question, which side are you on? The side of those who blasphemously sit in judgment over the Lord of glory? 
or the side of those who acknowledge him and his words to be true. He patiently endures sufferings. He also patiently endures judgment, the judgment of those who have no right to exercise judgment over him. In uh, verse 66, we're brought to the light of a new day. And in Jewish law, you couldn't have a legitimate trial during the nighttime. Kind of interesting. If you piece together all of the accounts of the Gospels, you know that while it was still dark, Jesus stood before Annas and Caiaphas. Annas is the former high priest. Caiaphas is the current high priest. Neither of those interactions went very well for Jesus if if he would have been looking to spare his life. Of course, he's not willingly laying down his life. But neither of those have gone very well for him, and and, uh, the Jewish leadership has been confirmed in their desire to crucify the Lord. So at daybreak, uh, this official council, this delegation is assembled. The fair trial, the idea of a fair trial is a bit of 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 a joke. It's a sham at this point, right? Jesus has been forcibly taken into custody. They've started beating him. Obviously, they're not interested Uh, in giving him a fair trial or considering him as possibly innocent. They ask him a question in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. In this short passage, there are three distinct titles of Jesus used. Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. Only Son of Man is the title that Jesus invokes himself. And that fact is not insignificant. We'll talk about that in just a minute. The first title is Christ. If you are the Christ, tell us. The Christ is, of course, the anointed one of God, the the Messiah. And in, in in very clear terms, Luke has told us at the beginning of the gospel that this is who Christ is. From the very beginning, or this is who Jesus is. He is the Christ. Luke chapter 2, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ, the Lord. Simeon holds Jesus in his arms in the temple when he is still a baby, and he rejoices because he is holding the Lord's Christ. Luke is bringing this together to show that what was revealed at the beginning of the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is sent from God, what was revealed at the beginning is being rejected at the end. The one who was sent for the falling and rising of many in Israel, the one who was sent for the glory of Israel, the leadership of God's people has rejected him. What was revealed at the beginning is being rejected at the end. Now, Jesus points to the, or he points out the pointlessness of responding to them in the way that they want. If I tell you, you will not believe me. That's the first thing he says. By that, Jesus means, look, I have proclaimed who I am. I've shown who I am in my works and in my words. My kingdom, my salvation has been proclaimed. All of that I've laid out clearly. If you do not believe in me now, you have rejected me. The second part of what Jesus says is, if I asked you, you would not answer. This is a reference back to all of those interactions between Jesus and particularly the leadership uh, in and around Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In chapter 20, remember, they had asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing all of these things? Jesus retorts with a question. He said, the baptism of John, is it from God or not? And they didn't answer. They said, we don't know, because Jesus' question trapped them. They were unwilling to stand on the conviction of truth and to come out and say that they rejected John the Baptist because they know that that would have started a riot. So Jesus says, if I ask you, you will not respond. You've shown yourselves that you're not really interested in that. That is what Jesus is pointing out there. 
But the point of this exchange is that as Jesus is on trial, what is going on? This, uh, this council, this official delegation of the leadership of Jerusalem, they are sitting in judgment over Jesus, over the Lord of glory. They are going to be the ones who decide whether or not what he says is true. The one who is the truth. The one who has and speaks nothing but the truth. And all of that comes to the fore in the way that Jesus responds. I'm not going to answer your question directly, but in verse 69, he makes this clear and stunning proclamation, prophecy of the future. He says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is the second of the three titles, Christ. Now Jesus invokes on his own the title Son of Man. This is one of his favorite titles for himself in the Gospel of Luke. As he's given the the central missional statement of what he is doing. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He loves calling himself this title, the Son of Man. It connects us back to Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man receives a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. So it's a title that has to do with ruling and reigning. An authority that is above all earthly powers. An authority that is the greatest and most ultimate reality. The reference to being seated at the right hand of the power of God is not from Daniel 7. That's from Psalm 110. Jesus is weaving together Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. Why is he doing that. He's responding to this judgment under which he stands. It's a predetermined judgment. It's not a a legitimate trial. They already know how they're going to respond to Jesus. And of course, Jesus knows all of that. And what he is saying is this. He's saying, you can reject my title, my rule, and my reign, but that does not change that it is true. That does not change that I am the son of man, the one who has been given authority over heaven and earth. The judgment I am given from my Father will come to this earth whether you confess it and believe it or not. It exists outside of all of the members of this delegation. It's amazing how contemporary this exchange is for us, isn't it? These questions of truth and ultimate truth, who has authority, The celebrity, the atheist I mentioned at the beginning uh, today, they both play a similar game. One keeps God at arm's length, at an arm's length, so that he only can invoke God when it's convenient for him to do so. The other completely rejects God, but both do so as a, a sovereign self. The judgment of neither of them changes ultimate truth, though. To recognize our place as human beings... As creatures, those created by God, is to recognize that our existence is fraught with limitation and with fallibility. An absolute objective truth exists outside of the human person whether one confesses and believes it or not. The goal of human beings should be to know the truth that exists outside of us, not trying to invent it according to our own preferences. You know, so many people, they... What's unfolding here in Luke, this is sort of the the, the central idea that is rejected by so many. That God the Father sent the Son to die for sin. Perhaps you know the name uh, Tony Campolo. His son, Bart Campolo, is someone I saw uh, in person growing up at at a youth conference. And I was 
somewhat not surprised a couple years ago to find out that he's now a self-avowed atheist and sort of leading all kinds of atheist communities. He's made shipwreck of his faith, certainly. In 2006, uh, as he was still sort of clinging to the last threads of his Christian identity, he published uh, an article in a Christian journal, and this is what he said. He said, For better or worse, I am simply not interested in any God but a completely good, entirely loving, and perfectly forgiving one. And by perfectly forgiving, what he means is he must be able to forgive people without the cross. And it, must ha- it, it happens outside of the cross because his reasoning was, if someone wrongs me, I can just forgive them, so why can't God do that as well? He goes on to say, Such a God may not exist, but I will die seeking such a God, and I will pledge my allegiance to no other possibility because, quite frankly, anything less is not worthy of my worship. What is he doing here? He's constructing in his own mind his idea of what God should be and then going out on a journey determined to find that God. The leadership of Israel has their idea of a Messiah, and they're going to make that Messiah conformed to their ideas. That's why they reject Jesus. He's not the Messiah that they were expecting. In our day, people lean into their own autonomy, their, their absolute freedom that they think they have, and what they do is they construct a God in their own image. For different reasons, people are offended by the cross today. Why? Because there is no sin in the minds of many. If there's no sin, then why would Jesus have to go to the cross for sin? But this is the question you need to be ready to answer if that is the mindset that uh, you have. Are you really prepared to assert your own authority over the truth of God's word? Because look at how Luke is unfolding this. Does it seem like everything that is happening is a surprise to Jesus? Does it seem like anything that is going on is against his will or against his father's will? Jesus knows exactly what he is doing in laying down his life. His patient endurance of suffering and the judgment of those who presume to have authority over him. Do we think that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating like blood, the sweat pouring off his body and yet crying out for strength to endure? Do we really think, do we really want to assert that any of this is a surprise to Jesus? Or is it rather the case that if a human is offended by what is going on here, the problem lies within the human heart? Reality trumps autonomy. Reality trumps autonomy. Basically what that means is that the ultimate truth of things is bigger than your own desire for freedom. Human beings need to fall under the authority of God. Human beings don't have the power to define the nature of reality. Uh, we can't declare ourselves to be, be different than uh, what the Lord has chosen to make us. A different sex, a different nationality, born in a different decade. None of that makes any sense. You can't declare your own ideas of reality and think that they are true. Jesus says to those who rest on their own judgment, the Son of Man who transcends all earthly reality, His judgment is coming. And any lower authority cannot change it, stop it, or alter it. But he patiently endures their judgment. And he patiently endures judgment so that he might make forgiveness of sin. Finally, he patiently endures unbelief. Jesus has made this stunning proclamation. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they ask him, so you are the Son of God then? 
And this shows their two-pronged approach of the leadership of Israel. One, they need to get Jesus to proclaim that he is a king so that they can make him stand in front of Pilate, which is what will happen in chapter 23. They'll say he proclaimed himself to be Christ, that is, a king. But, as we know from the way that the story unfolds, Pilate's not going to be convinced that Jesus should be crucified. But what is it going to be that sways his opinion? It's going to be the opinion of the crowds. So in order to get the crowds behind them, they want Jesus to proclaim that he is the Son of God so that they can accuse him of blasphemy, so that the crowds might cry out, he needs to be crucified. For in Jewish law, blasphemy is worthy of death. So Christ and Son of God are somewhat related, but here Christ is more about that human political leader the one who proclaims himself to be a king, son of God, is more the, the divine son, the one who, who comes from the Father himself. But we should note the way that Jesus responds to their question. So you are the son of God. Jesus says, you say that I am. That's probably the better way of translating it. Not it is right, or you are right in saying I am, but rather Jesus simply says, you say that I am. And there Jesus is pointing out the gap between what they confess and what they believe. See, they have uttered it with their mouth, you are the Son of God, but they don't believe it. They don't believe it. They will continue down the road of their false judgment and their unbelief, but none of it will change to where Jesus is going, that he is going to the right hand of the Father. We mentioned uh, Isaiah chapter 50. And uh, in Isaiah chapter 50, the Messiah or the suffering servant, he is the one who is vindicated by the Lord. It says, The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The patient endurance of Jesus results in the vindication of his Father, his going to the right hand of the majesty on high, his being given a name that is above every other name. And so Jesus' patient endurance is an encouragement for our patient endurance in faith and belief. He rebukes the unbelief. He rebukes the false judgment of this leadership delegation in Jerusalem. And it confronts the world with whether or not you will believe in the truth the Son of Man, and the Son of God, and the Christ, the Messiah. First John chapter 4 says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. You see the the threads of connection between faith, confession, gratitude, and then finally, submission. Submission. First John goes on to say, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Those who assert their own authority, those who perhaps want to keep God at an arm's length and say, no one can tell me how to live my life. My faith is important to me, but uh, no one has ultimate authority over me. That is a heart that has yet to understand faith and gratitude and submission and obedience. 
the, the heart that has been saved is the one that says, I love God, I obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, because I have been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And his truth exists outside of me, so I know I'm going to confess it and believe it, because Christ is on the throne. The tomb is empty, and that's true, no matter what any individual says, confesses, or believes. In a Flannery O'Connor novel, there's an atheist adult widower who takes in a, a, a handicapped teenage boy. This teenage boy comes from a, a rough and tumble background, but a, a background that has a little bit more of a respect for ultimate truth than this uh, atheist man does. And one day the man comes in and uh, he finds this boy reading scripture. He says, to them, he says to him, you don't believe that. You're too intelligent to believe that. And this teenage boy looks up at him. He says, even if I didn't believe it, it would still be true. And that is how Jesus' words meet us today in, regard, in regards to the word of God and the gospel itself. The world may resist it, but the tomb is empty. And Christ is still on the throne. Even if we didn't believe it, it would still be true. So the question, of course, brothers and sisters, do we believe it? Are we clinging to faith in Christ? Confess that he came in the flesh. Continue believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and the reigning and ruling and returning Son of Man. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with grateful hearts. We give you thanksgiving and praise and adoration for the one who has won all of our salvation. We thank you for Jesus who endured this suffering, this judgment, the unbelief of so many who rejected him. And so, Father, we thank you for drawing us to him. We pray that by your spirit you would keep us. Keep us unto our death or unto the day of Jesus Christ. Pray in his name. Amen.